Hello and a very warm welcome to the State of Our Nation, a podcast by Access Social Care. I'm your host, Carrie Gersteimer, and today we're going to be talking to experts, leaders and changemakers about all things adult social care. We will all need social care at some point in our lives and at Access Social Care, our aim is to ensure that people get the support they have a right to. So listen along to find out more about the state of our nation as we discuss the challenges facing millions of people in need of social care across the country. I'm really pleased to welcome two of my brilliant colleagues to today's podcast, Kate Whitaker and Jackie Martell. Welcome, both of you. So Kate is a legal manager and Jackie, a senior advice coordinator at Access Social Care. And as the mother of a son with autism and learning disabilities, Jackie is also an expert by experience. The work that Jackie and Kate do alongside their teams is absolutely vital in helping us provide legal advice and support for people with social care needs. Now, we talk a lot about the broad funding and policy issues facing the social care sector, but the reality of this crisis is individuals left without the care that they have a right to. And with two people here today with a wealth of community-based experience, I'd like Kate and Jackie to really explain a little bit about their work at Access Social Care and give us a bit of insight into the true state of our social care system. So thanks both of you for joining us today. I wonder if you could kick us off by explaining your work at Access Social Care. So I'll go over to you first, Jackie, if you don't mind. It'd be great to hear a little bit about your day-to-day responsibilities. Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, as the senior coordinator for the Southwest, actually most of my work at the moment is in Gloucestershire, where we're trying to see how we can reach people who are least likely to know their rights around social care and also see how we can gather evidence and examples to try and influence the policy and practice of the local authority so that it benefits everybody. As an an advice organisation, we can't reach everybody or be available for everybody. So it's really important for us to try and change the system so that everybody benefits. So day to day, it's talking to different organisations, doing training, um, trying to find ways to reach people and, and, and offer them that help and advice, as well as looking for ways that we can work positively and proactively with the local authority. Thank you, Jackie. And Kate, who are you working with um, in the community and and what do you do? Um, So I I work in the legal team um, and a lot of what I do is around delivering the advice and casework that we offer to people all over England. Um, So people contact us who are individuals with care needs or from family members or we hear of people through providers that raise the issues with us and so it's all kinds of social care issues and then often it spills into health as well because of the long-standing failures to meet people's basic needs so we we do that casework we also as Jackie described want to help to bring about wider change with these issues so we spot trends and themes in the casework that we're seeing for people and we so so I'm involved in um, wider working with other organizations and with government to try and influence systemic change 
Uh, so one of my areas of focus within the casework and the wider influencing and systems change is on an area called transforming care. It's about people with autism um, and or learning disabilities who have had failures with their social care. They've got into crisis and often have developed distressed behaviours, which are then responded to in absolutely the wrong way. So instead of fixing the issues with their social care, people get excluded and end up often in the most horrendous hospital units where they get stuck because there's still no solutions in the community for them to, to come out to so that's a real focus of um, of need that we try and address thank you Kate and, and I know that those cases that you're working on are some of the worst that I've ever seen in over a decade in the sector and I, I wonder just to give us a little bit of insight in the spectrum of cases that we handle whether you might be able to tell us a little bit more about one of the cases that you're working on and then Jackie perhaps I'll come to you so that we can really see as I say the, the, the spectrum of the type of cases that we work on so Kate I don't know if you wanted to go first yeah so, so I completely agree with you that that those cases um, that we see are absolutely extreme and horrific because of where people have got to in terms of this slippery slope where needs are not met at an early stage and then things go wrong and then instead of fixing that people are allowed to end up more distressed and getting excluded from their communities and so physically excluded in the end where they get sent hundreds of miles away to inappropriate units where they literally get treated like prisoners some of these units are actually forensic units for um, so high secure and medium secure units so alongside prisoners who've murdered and so on and these are people with quite significant learning disabilities totally unable to manage in that kind of environment and it just makes their distress far far more extreme and the, the horrendous thing that we see in these cases is that as soon as people are in the units out of sight, they are treated just based on their behaviour, which is extreme. And they are then treated as not suitable to be in the community. And everybody completely forgets about the reason for them getting into crisis, which is not anything to do with them. It's the failures in their support. So. An example of that actually is someone that, that you know we're supporting who just started off with small problems in his community package because he was placed out of area hundreds of miles away from family in a care home setting. But because that was far from family and because of the restrictive approach taken, he ended up deteriorating and the services ignored family ignored concerns about his health he had a complete health crisis that the mother predicted and he remains stuck hundreds of miles out of area so we have been helping to ask the commissioner to commission a suitable placement that's person-centered and back near family 
Lovely. Thank you. And yes, really, really tough circumstances. So thank you for illustrating that for us, Kate. Jackie, I don't know if you want to just give us a little insight into some of the cases that you work on. Yeah, um, hopefully at the early intervention end, really, of the stories um, that Kate's just given. So one man who's autistic, able to manage his you know, personal care and food and those sorts of things, but really other parts of his life deteriorate and go very wrong, who's not got anything to do in his day currently, no activities, no nothing of interest. He can't, he's in a very remote place and can't get to anything. But when he phoned social care help desk, was told that if he could make a sandwich and brush his teeth, he wasn't eligible for an assessment even. And, you know, if that situation had carried on, then, you know, the distress and depression that he was developing would have manifested itself in in more challenging behaviour and maybe ended up in the the sorts of units that Kate's talking about. So we've just been able to give him the tools to request that assessment and to get an advocate and to move on to the next stage with trying to plan appropriate care for him. Uh, The situation is where um, a woman who can't manage her personal care needs um, or nutrition and so is reliant on her sister coming once a week or every other week to wash her and change her clothes, turned down, in the words of the local authority, support because she couldn't afford the charges that were being asked and so was left in a very, very isolated and um, difficult situation which where, again, her mental health and physical health had deteriorated in that time. Thank you. Um, really excellent description there and really illustrating the, the reality of what the, the, the problems with social care funding mean for families. So we're recording this podcast. It's just been a week since the Chancellor delivered his autumn statement. And in that statement, he made a further two year delay to social care cap reforms. And the Chancellor announced that funding previously intended to cover the cost of the cap will be reallocated for the provision of care packages. Now, alongside a potential increase in council tax, Hunt has calculated a £4.7 billion funding allowance for social care, which equates to just over £2 billion per year for the next two years. Now, given Hunt himself, as chair of the Health and Social Care Committee, said social care needed £7 billion per year as a starting point, the sector is quite understandably concerned that the budget did not go far enough to fix social care. So I'm interested to hear from you what you think the primary issues are that this will cause for the people trying to access social care. So Kate, perhaps if you'd like to kick us off. Yeah, well, exactly as you say, it's it's just clearly not enough money and the you know, we, we really have to put it in the context of the unbelievable level of cuts that the government has been forcing local authorities to dish out since 2010. In real terms, adult social care spending in England has fallen by 6% per capita in that time. And so, so it just comes nowhere close to trying to address the profound 
impacts um, of, of those changing. So about a third, I think, of that cash is earmarked for tackling bed blocking. So people stuck in hospital because there's nothing arranged or available for them in the community, or in fact, in many cases, just because they haven't even had an assessment. So they stay in hospital deteriorating really, really rapidly, which is a terrible false economy because it makes it so hard for them to support when they get out. So that focus on hospital discharge is really, really important, but it, it actually, the, the way that that's being looked at is actually misguided because it misses the point that this this isn't just about a backlog of people needing to get out of hospital. It's about the whole fact that on a massive scale, people are going into hospital unnecessarily. People are getting ill unnecessarily. People are getting distressed and challenging and ending up in the units that I've described unnecessarily. Uh, And the reason for that is on this massive scale that there is no longer any attempt for social services to meet needs before people get into health crisis. If anything, it makes sense for local authorities to let people get into crisis and actively cut their support because then people go into the health system and that relieves social services of their their duties. A a pretty grave situation there. So this, this podcast is called State of Our Nation. And I wonder if, Jackie, you might be able to reflect a little about what this means for people in social care and who has been hit the hardest I think the most vulnerable in the society has been hit the hardest, but I think it's starting to have an impact on everybody. Um, For example, I don't think many people know that if you do have below the savings limit to get paid social care, you still have to make a contribution. And in Gloucestershire, for example, they charge people £29 million towards their social care. Um, and £10 million of that is, is from people with learning disabilities, severe learning disabilities. So it will be from their benefits. So then they don't have the funds to pay for the basics. The cost of living crisis has hit them the hardest um, because of fuel bills and food bills are the biggest proportion of their, their need. So I think councils are balancing their budgets by charging the most vulnerable. But then people are stopping having the care. They're giving back packages. They're saying, I can't afford that. And then that's having a knock-on impact on if they're a tenant of a housing association, the, the housing association's picking up um, issues, antisocial behaviour issues. Um, I heard last week about a woman who was, who turned down support now, but she's throwing her rubbish out of the first floor window because she can't get down the stairs. You know, it's, it's going to start impacting everybody in the community, but the most vulnerable people are, are not getting the support they need, but they're also being charged a large chunk of their benefits so they're not going to be able to eat and keep their houses warm. Thank you Jackie and I'd just like to come back 
then if if I can, because you started to talk there about the cost of living crisis and the fact that people are tragically having to choose between heating their homes, eating and care, and that because of this, some people are choosing not to have care. Um, and, and I'm aware that, you know, when you're charged for social care, you're supposed to be left with the minimum income guarantee. Now, my understanding is that the minimum income guarantee has not kept up with inflation. And so what we're seeing is that in real terms, the amount of money that people are being left with after they have paid for their care is in real terms is, is worth less and less because of the cost of living going up so much. Is there anything more that you wanted to talk about in relation to cost of living? And I'm, I'm aware that there's been that some of the additional money that's been given out during COVID to people on benefits has been scooped up, hasn't it, by um, local authorities in their charging systems. But I, I wonder if there's anything else that you'd like to add about the cost of living. Yeah, so at the moment, if they increase people's benefits um, and they are paying a contribution towards their social care from that, then their contribution will increase. So the increase in benefits will go directly to the local authority in effect. But also the local authority has a duty to give information about how disability related expenses, for example, um, should be taken into consideration to make sure that the charges are affordable and people are not being given that information and blanket policies are being put in place to say, we won't include this and we will include that. Or you... So people are not getting um, left with the money that they need to cover their basic needs, as well as the additional cost of being disabled. So they're, they're being hit doubly really. Mm. And and so people are being hit all the time. And we, we know that each person um, will have their own individual set of care needs. But Kate, are there any recurring issues that you see in the cases that you work on with people trying to access care? Yes. I mean, as Jackie mentions, we see a lot of people even being denied an assessment for all sorts of reasons which are, are unlawful, but people don't know their rights and so, so they, you know, they get turned away. But even when people get an assessment, local authorities are just failing to, to provide enough support and they're also not providing the right kind of support. So what we see with cost-cutting approaches is that people don't have personalised support where carers are available to help the person at the right time with the things that they want to do. And so people are increasingly being left in more restrictive settings. They're not able to live in normal houses with tenancies. They're ending up in care homes where they just have to wait for, for very basic support, basically just feeding and washing. But the Care Act says that people must have support for all aspects of their well-being to live an ordinary life. And what we see is that if people don't get support to be able to go out and about and to do something meaningful during the day, and you know sometimes this is people who can work if they've got a little bit of social care support, we see that people's lives just go wrong. And it's such a forced economy because in the way that I've described, people, they get health problems. They become 
isolated, depressed, they're not able to work, they're not able to keep in touch with friends. And then it becomes very, very expensive because they do end up in the health system. So we've talked a lot about the problems with social care, but I wonder, Jackie, if you'd like to tell us to improve the state of our nation, what one thing would be the biggest game changer to the social care sector? It's really difficult not to just say money, but there's something I think about valuing care staff equally to nurses. At the moment, if healthcare assistants in the health system get paid slightly more, people move from the care system to the health system, vice versa. You know, we're talking about people who are paid very little for the incredibly valuable job that they do and the skilled job that they do. And so, yes, 10p an hour to work in Lidl's will encourage somebody out of the care system because of, you know, they're not, they don't have the responsibility then that they do as a care worker. But I think if there was parity between health care staff and care staff and the funding to make that, you know, sufficient for all of them, I think we'd have a much more stable workforce. And and that's the core you know, core needs for people is is good people supporting them. And Kate, just to close us off then, I know that before we came online, you were talking a little bit about the the social care cap reforms. And I wonder if you'd like to just give us a bit of an outline with that and the thing that you think would be the biggest game changer to social care. Yeah, so the idea of the care cap is a good one in theory. It's to try and reduce the unfairness of how the costs of social care fall on different people. And that it is really important to do that because at the moment it's totally unfair. And social care, what, what we need to really recognise is that social care needs are an issue for everyone in exactly the same way that health needs are, and they're totally connected. So you don't know when in your life you're going to need social care. It might be you know, you did get an injury in your 30s and then need social care for the rest of your life and so on. But the sooner we get the right care, the more it helps people to stay independent, stay working and so on, being part of a community. So that's at the moment falling completely unfairly on different people. And the care cap is, is supposed to help with that, to even it out. But the the proposals are the wrong approach. So they're proposing this very massive bureaucratic system where for people to get to the point of having free social care you have to spend years jumping through hoops to show that you've paid enough so what we need instead is very simple we need a national care service where people get the social care support they need free um, at the point of delivery just like with the NHS and then it will be provided early and this is what they're doing in Scotland and they are scrapping social care charges for all social care provision and making ministers accountable for social care unlike uh, the system here where there's no accountability and no early intervention. An excellent call to arms there. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming onto the podcast today. You've really shown us what is happening on the ground. And let's hope that there's some important listeners um, and decision makers amongst our listeners today. So thank you once again.
as you can see, we're facing great uncertainty and it's vital that charities like ours exist to support those struggling to meet their social care needs. Keep listening as I will now be chatting to another inspiring guest about their work or experience within the adult social care sector, asking how and why we need to see changes in the system. Please join me in welcoming Rachel Dodson. Rachel is the Chief Executive of Dimensions, an organisation working to support people with learning disabilities and autism to live ordinary lives in the community. This autumn, Rachel has been working with others to develop a financial impact assessment of independent social care providers. As you can imagine, it makes for quite a difficult read. So Rachel's here to talk about the work that she's doing and the findings of this market oversight report. Hello, Rachel, and welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, Carrie. Nice to be here. Hi. So can we start by hearing about your role at Dimensions and why it's important to you? Uh, so I've been at Dimensions since June 2019. I joined as the managing director initially and I became the chief executive in March this year. My work has always been in social care. It's what I've always done. So I'm starting off as a kitchen assistant at the age of 17 in an older people's home. Um, so I've worked my way right up the ladder, I guess you could say. Excellent. Um, and I've worked in a wide range of roles. So I worked for Birmingham People First for a couple of years, which is the uh, self-advocacy movement for people with learning disabilities. And I also worked for Care Quality Commission for 13 years and left there. And I, I decided it was time to go back into the world of providing support to people. I'm passionate about what we do at Dimensions. We're a very values-led organisation and I see that right throughout the organisation like a stick of rock. We really live our values uh, through and through, which is really important to me. It's a tough time in social care, but it's it's a great organisation to be part of. Thank you for that, Rachel. And yes, it is a tricky time, isn't it? But we'll hear all about that in a moment. So um, Dimensions, before we go into the market oversight report, is a member of Access Social Care. And we work with your staff to help them feel more confident using legal language. And we provide advice and casework support to get better outcomes for people in your services. Could you just give us a, a quick explanation of why that work matters to Dimensions? We've been a member of Access to Social Care for some time, but I think as things have got, and it's always been an important organisation to be part of, but as things have got tougher, it's become even more important. So I know from my colleagues that our work with Access to Social Care has seen some real great outcomes for people in terms of challenging funding decisions, commissioning decisions, and making sure that commissions are fulfilling their responsibilities under the Care Act. And I know that my colleagues describe the, the, the Access to Social Care service, and I quote here, the support they get is fantastic. It's a friendly service, really helpful to talk issues through with people who understand. You don't make people feel intimidated and the legal team provides great support. So I think the confidence and the skill and the support you've given us and the help to challenge some of those decisions for people really does make people to have better lives, which is what we're all about here at Dimensions. Well, thank you, Rachel. I maybe should be paying you for that like nice little plug there. <laughs> um, so, so, so let's have a, a chat then about the concerns around the, the autumn budget and, and let's hear a little bit about the market oversight report that was published in October. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit about the research and who was involved and why you decided to take part in it? Yeah, and I think probably the best place to start is to explain what the market oversight scheme is and why it was put into place because not everybody might be, will be familiar with that. So back in 2011, some people might remember there was an organisation called Southern Cross. 
and Southern Cross provided services to older people, almost 30,000 older people. And Southern Cross found itself in financial trouble and almost overnight, those 30,000 people were at risk of losing their home and losing their support. It was older people, not younger adults. And at that point in time, actually, lots of providers rallied around to make sure people didn't lose their homes, to make sure people got that support. But as a result of that, the government decided that certain organisations, so organisations of a certain scale, should be subject to financial oversight by the Care Quality Commission. And so the market oversight scheme was put into legislation and regulation for those providers that were seen as being too big to fail. So for us at Dimensions, we support over three and a half thousand people. We have six thousand colleagues. We have a turnover of over 200 million pounds. We are in that category of being a too big to fail organisation. As I started saying at the beginning of this conversation, Carrie, times are really tough in social care. And I knew from talking to my fellow chief executives that we were all facing some really financial challenging times. Clearly, financial data is quite sensitive. It's not something you want to openly share with others. So myself and some of the chief executives came up with the idea of commissioning Cordis Bright to carry out uh, some independent research to try and really understand if the financial challenges we were talking about were real. So we commissioned them to collect financial data Um, and data about our staffing levels and turnover, those sorts of issues, uplifts from a number of people in that that market oversight scheme. So almost 70% of the providers in the market oversight scheme took part. And when I say 70% of those providers, I mean the providers that are called specialists in the CQC market oversight scheme, because we're the providers that provide support to working age adults with learning disabilities and autistic people. In terms of the organisations that took part, I say it's almost 70% of those big organisations. Between us, we have £1.8 billion of turnover. We employ Mm. over 43,000 people and we support 29,000 people. So in terms of our scale, the report is authoritative in terms of its findings because it's it's so large scale in in terms of our size. And why did we do it? We wanted to really be able to to try and do something that would make a difference. Um, There's been a lot of reports, whether it's the CQC, State of Care report, the Skills for Care report that's highlighted the plight of the sector. We wanted to be able to contribute to that and really show the evidence of the impact of many years of severe underfunding in the social care sector. And I guess for me, if I think about the Einstein definition of insanity, you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We wanted to demonstrate that really, I guess that's, that's where we are in some ways. So tell us a little bit more about what the report has found then, Rachel. I I mean, there's some pretty damning stuff in there. And and, and as I said at the start, it it made for quite a difficult read. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the the financial settlements and, and what that means for you in the context of inflation and cost of living and um, and increased costs for care providers. Of course. And whenever I start talking about this, I remind people that whilst we're talking about people's finances here, behind this lies the lives of people with learning disabilities and autistic people and their families. So whilst this report represents financial you know, instability in the sector and those issues, we have to remember that at the heart of this is about people's lives. Thanks for bringing it back to that, Rachel. And um, we earlier just heard from Jackie and from 
from Kate in the legal team really explaining what this means, what the social care funding crisis means for individuals and the people that they work with in communities. But yeah, it's really important to bring it back to that. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's absolutely fine. I think we just have to keep that in our minds. So what, what it finds is that uplifts from local authorities over several years have not kept up with statutory increases. And by statutory increases, I mean increases to the national living wage, which of course is welcome. We all want people to be paid as much as they can. Um, but the, the, the funding from local authorities, which of course is predicated on funding from central government, has not been able to keep up with those with, with, with those statutory increases. As a result of that, a number of organisations are expecting to be in a deficit by the end of this financial year because of those, those years and years of underfunding. People have been able to draw on their reserves. They've been able to access other, other pots of money, if you like, through their reserves. That's not a sustainable position for any organisation. It finds that there is really high levels of agency use. So agency costs have trebled uh, across all of those providers in that scheme in the last three years. And back to my point about this is about people. Of course, agency costs are an unwelcome cost. They're a much higher cost for providers. But the impact of that on the people that support is about potentially inconsistency of support because you've got different people coming through the door. And we all know how important it is that people get consistent support in terms of helping them develop skills and getting with their lives. Knowing people that know you well is really important. And also just from a human dignity perspective, isn't it? You know, if you're having perhaps having personal care and having a complete stranger coming into your house to deliver it because it's agency staff, that's just it's that's extremely difficult for people and even more difficult if you have a learning disability or if you have autism because it, that that stability is so important to people's lives isn't it absolutely it is and particularly think about things like communication you know a lot of people communicate in a particular way having someone supporting you that understands that is really critical you know and I think I've got my morning routine that I like in a certain way we all do and having someone who doesn't understand that and might do it in different ways is really difficult for people so absolutely the dignity and respect point is really important and I think, you know, the, the outcome of this is we are going to some people start having to, to serve notice on people's supports ca- packages or contract handback, as, it, as it's known. And that will always be the last resort for all organisations that took part in this research, I'm sure. But that will be the reality, because unless there is funding from central government to help local authorities fund providers properly, we're going to find ourselves in this in this circle that just keeps going round and round. And we're really starting to hear that from our members. We're really it's and it's definitely not just the larger providers that are experiencing that. We've heard that lots of our members are struggling to staff their services and and are having to go back to local authorities to say we, we just can't continue to run this service. So yes, it, it is quite a, a scary time, isn't it? And I think lots of us that have worked in the sector for decades, I, I hear, I'm hearing a lot of people say I've never known it to be this bad. So I'm I'm curious to hear, Rachel, in the context of you saying that you've been doing this report, there was a, a mention of social care in the autumn statement. Um, it was back on the agenda again. The government is saying that it's it's concerned that a lack of care provision is causing what they term as bed blocking in the NHS or you know, the inability to discharge people from hospital settings. I'm curious what you think about that autumn statement, considering the findings in the market oversight report. Will that budget do enough? Of course, any additional funding is always welcome. Um, but I'm mindful that 
you know, the Health and Social Care Select Committee under Jeremy Hunt's leadership identified that we needed £7 billion per annum of investment in social care to really fix these problems that have been ongoing and chronic for a long time. It's not like this has just happened. This is a, a build-up of years of underfunding in the sector. So my view is it's not going to be enough. And clearly what we do in Dimensions is support people of working age. You know, so when the government talks about social care and funding into social care and getting people out of hospitals, of course, that's really important. But that's mainly about the support that older people will need. And whilst I think we've still got to be entirely clear on how much of this is new funding and how much of it is existing funding and how much of it's going where, it's clear that it's it's not going to be enough to make sure that people lead meaningful and fulfilling lives. I think AIDS have been really clear that the funding's not enough and we've got greater levels of unmet need. And, you know, back to my point about this is a, an ongoing issue. You know, local authorities have been underfunded for many years and they've been raiding their reserves, cutting services, proper funding is really critical so you know when I think about the national living wage I'm delighted that that's going to raise £10.42 an hour in the, in the face of inflation increasing costs for our workforce that's really really important my anxiety is whether local authorities will be able to fund providers to meet that new level of national living wage and for me here at Dimensions I don't want to just pay people the national living wage I want to pay above and beyond that of course we do because we are competing with so many sectors with hospitality with retail not only the NHS so is it welcome yes is it enough No, and I think we've got to remember that at some point in our lives, we'll all need social care, whether it's for ourselves, whether it's for one of our loved ones, and it's it's a sector that needs proper investment. Thank you. And that's that's an often a, a little understood point, isn't it? Because at, at any one time, on, on a population um, perspective, you may not be affected by social care now, but the reality is at some point, everyone in society will be affected by social care, you are likely to need it. We know that by the time we're pension age, half of us will be disabled and will need social care. And you know, whether that happens whilst you're working age or or indeed whether you're you're born with a congenital condition that means that you have a need for social care as a child or as a working age adult, we are all going to need this social care provision. And we really do need to look at it as a, across society as a whole. I think that's an important point. So can you tell us just for a moment, Rachel, what the cost of living crisis means for your workforce and what it means for dimensions in the sector? It's the cost of living crisis. It's the workforce shortage coming together, I think, to cause a perfect storm. But I'm fortunate here in Dimensions that we have a board that are wholly committed to our, our workforce and paying what we can. We've awarded people three pay awards, our support workers during the last 12 months and we've also given a surplus distribution payment to people so we are investing all we can into pay because we think that's the right thing to do for our colleagues but we've got a workforce that are fatigued they've come through a pandemic and they're now in a, into, a, into a staffing crisis and you know I'm humbled by the stories of people going above and beyond day in day out and I find it really disturbing and difficult to say that despite what we have done on pay, I know we still have people using food banks, the people that are working for us that are using food banks. And in this day and in this modern day and age to sort of, I find that really hard to, I find it hard to say and I find it hard to hear. It's really tough. And, you know, for us, our vacancies are higher than they ever have been. We've got almost 10% vacancies. Our turnover is higher than it's ever been. It's still below the sector average, but it's really, it's really high. So I'm really concerned 
concerned about the cost of living, uh, the inflation on our workforce, because it doesn't matter what we do on pay. Trying to keep up with inflation is really challenging. Just to bring us to a close then, Rachel, and with with your market oversight report in mind, I suppose, I'm curious to know what you're calling for, because I, I, my last question would be to improve the state of our nation. What one thing would be the biggest game changer to the social care sector? Well, in terms of what we're calling from the market oversight report, I guess there's more than one thing in there, Karen. I was thinking about this and I thought, I wish I could say that that it wouldn't be the funding, but it is the funding. That is the single biggest game changer. One of the things that we've said in the market oversight report and we've said in our workforce manifesto is we must have parity of pay and esteem with the NHS for social care. So actually, the skill set of a support worker is not very different to that of a healthcare assistant. It's very transferable. It's the skilled and professional workforce that actually at times they're responsible for people's lives. So if we could at least reach a position where we were benchmarking support worker pay as a minimum with NHS Band 3, which is £11.11 £11 an hour, I think that would make a huge difference in terms of encouraging people into the workforce, people staying in social care because they see the value it brings and, and the, the career pathways it, it offers. That would be my one big thing. Really clear. Thank you, Rachel. And obviously making sure that that money's ring fence from central government or through to local authority and through to providers to make sure that that really happens. So absolutely. thank you. I'm, I'm really grateful that you've joined us today. It's such an important report. So thank you for doing that on behalf of the sector. And let's hope the decision makers are listening to the podcast today and you're getting your message out there to the people that matter. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to this month's episode of The State of Our Nation. For more information, please go to www.accesscharity.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at AccessCharity1. At a time when the third sector continues to struggle in the face of economic uncertainty, your support has never meant more. That's why I would like to take this opportunity to let you know about our cost of living crisis campaign set up to help us provide free legal advice to people in England, ensuring they get the support they're entitled to. To make a pledge, please see the link to our Crowd Justice page in the bio. I hope you will all tune in next month to hear our next exciting panel of guests.